Heavenly Father, may your word dwell in us and bear much fruit to your glory. Amen. Well, welcome to part five of our series, Loaded Questions. It's a six-part series, so next week we are uh, finishing it off. In this series, we're considering some important questions that are asked in the Easter story. And this week, we're up to those questions and those episodes that occur after Jesus' death and resurrection. And in these episodes, particularly this week and next week, not only does John sort of tie up some loose ends, tie up some of the loose ends of his gospel, but he also um, casts a vision and sets the stage for the next scene in which we ourselves have a part to play. But like last week, I just want to pause and uh, empathise with the disciples for a moment. Because they have been on an emotional roller coaster, haven't they? In just a few short days, they'd gone from utter despair to pure joy. But they still are a little disoriented as they disembark because they're still grappling with the reality of the resurrection. What did it mean? And more importantly, what did it mean for them? And so some of them return to their spiritual home um, to reflect on these things. The Sea of Galilee, the, the very place where Jesus first called them to follow him. Uh, and uh, unable to sit still, Peter declares, I'm going out to fish. Now, apparently, uh, fishing therapy is a thing. It's a thing. Uh, it's now prescribed, actually, by health professionals. Um, because it's been shown to relieve uh, post-traumatic stress and depression and anxiety even. Now, this is very good news if you're, if you're a keen fisherman. Um, it's early days, and so people are still sort of learning how and why it works. However, perhaps we're just rediscovering what the disciples already knew. My point is that they have returned to fishing doesn't necessarily imply that they've abandoned their faith. Right? Perhaps they've just needed time to recover and regroup. Uh, but the group therapy session does not go too well. Verse 3, so they went out and got out into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Right? I've been fishing once. And I caught one fish. It's a pretty good, that's a pretty good strike rate, isn't it? So what's their problem? Right? These are experienced fishermen. Clearly there was something else going on here because there was someone else there waiting and watching. And early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realise it was Jesus. Their distance from shore, the early morning light mist conceals him. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. 
And he said, throw your net to the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Right, as he had on another occasion, Jesus knew that there was this great school of fish just off the other side of their boat. The question that I have is why on earth did the disciples listen to him? I can't imagine these fishermen would ordinarily have taken suggestions from a spectator. Right? None of us take that too well, do we? Backseat driver and that sort of stuff. But with nothing to lose, they dropped the net and well, the rest is history. Now, clearly, um, that the fishermen had no fish is the presenting complication in this story. That is the presenting complication in this story. However, the deeper complication in this story is that these disciples had no Jesus. That's the deeper complication. That is the complication that actually these episodes after the Jesus' death and resurrection resolve because he wasn't with them like he was before. He was now only appearing to them. They were adrift, if you will. What were they to do now without him guiding and directing them? And it's at this moment that something clicks for John. Perhaps the sun rose, perhaps the mist lifted, perhaps his eyes were opened. But in verse 7 we read, Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, which we, which we think is John, said to Peter, It is the Lord! And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and jumped into the water. Counterintuitive, isn't it? But Peter is impulsive. He must get there. Now, John doesn't actually describe the scene, but I like to imagine Peter thrashing about and just barely making it to shore and standing there with his dripping beard and matted hair, smiling his big, toothy grin. I would love to know if any words were exchanged at this point. But as the others arrived, Jesus uh, said to them, bring me some of the fish you've caught. And so Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Clearly, Peter was the strongest. So he, he jumps back into the boat, drags it ashore. And uh, this enormous catch of 153 Fish. This wasn't just a generous provision, it was a miraculous provision. Now, there have been many attempts uh, to detect some symbolic significance behind this very specific number. Why 153? So, let me give you some examples of some of these attempts. Some interpreters have suggested that the total number of kinds of Fish counted by the ancients was 153. Therefore, the number of symbolizes the universal appeal of the gospel. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Except it turns out the ancients knew more than 153 types of fish. 
Others have done some maths. This is going to excite some of you. Others have done some maths uh, and noticed that 153, get this, 153 is the sum of the numbers from 1 to 17. Amazing, isn't it? And the significance of 17 is that it is the sum of 10, the number of commandments, and 7, supposedly the number of spiritual gifts. Others think it's interesting that 153 uh, dots can be arranged in an equilateral triangle um, with 17 dots along each uh, side, and they think that perhaps it's some allusion to the Trinity. Now, I don't find um, any of these terribly convincing. Uh, I take it as a fisherman's record of fact. But at the purely historical level, it's unsurprising that someone counted them, um, either as part of dividing them up against, uh, amongst themselves for sale, or simply because one of the disciples was so amazed at the size of the catch, he, he said to his mate, wow, I wonder how many there were. <laughs> Perhaps they counted them there and then. But it is in the light of this miracle that we come to our loaded question uh, this morning. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And just face value, one might ask, why, if the disciples knew it was the Lord, would they want to ask him, who are you? But notice, it does not merely say that they did not ask him. It says that they dared not ask him. Why? Well, the only reason that we are given is that they already knew the answer. And so they should have. And so they should have. Jesus is Lord. And that Jesus is Lord has been the concern of, of John's book, right? And we know this because... Throughout it, Jesus uses statements beginning with the words, I am. Beginning with the words, I am. And it's interesting, when God first introduces himself to Moses back in Exodus, he says, what does he say? He says, I am who I am. This is what you would say to the Israelites. I am has sent, uh, you, sent, sent me to you. It's where we get the name Yahweh from, which is translated as Lord in capital letters. Uh, in our English translations. And so whenever Jesus made one of these I am statements in John's gospel, he was sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly, claiming to be the Lord himself. And actually, Lord is the most frequent title that is uh, given for Jesus in the New Testament. Except that, most of the time, he was given that title uh, because he was seen as some type of vague authority figure, healer or teacher or something like that. However, after the resurrection, after the resurrection, the title Lord, when applied to Jesus, came a, became a way of saying that Jesus is God. And so that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus is the Lord. Or perhaps nowadays we, we mightn't use that phrase, Lord, or that word Lord much. But we do use another word. We use boss, don't we? Jesus is boss, right? He has all authority in heaven and on earth. 
That is the great conclusion to John's gospel. And so the natural question that John would have us ask at this point in his gospel is this. Who is Jesus to me? Who is Jesus to me? Now, that you are here on a Sunday morning, I'm guessing that most of you would know, along with the disciples, that Jesus is Lord. But what exactly does that mean? Well, if Jesus is Lord, remember Jesus is boss, which means this, he has the right to tell us what to do. So Jesus himself once asked, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The pioneering missionary to to China, Hudson Taylor, is famously quoted as saying, Christ is either Lord of all or is not Lord at all. And it is a challenge uh, for us Christians to bring every area of our life under the sovereign rule of the Lord Jesus. Now we're going to do a bit of a mental exercise here. I want you to imagine the floor plan of your house. Not the details, just just the floor plan of your house. Can you picture it? Now I want you to rename the various rooms in your house to represent the various parts of your life. So your marriage might be one, your parenting or your grandparenting, or your workplace or your ministry here at church or your social life or your leisure time or your finances. You get the idea, right? It's a helpful exercise because it helps us identify the different parts of our lives and whether or not Jesus is Lord over them. Is there a room you were keeping from him? Are there, <coughs> are there areas of our lives where Jesus would say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? If we confess Jesus is Lord, we must bring every nook and cranny of our lives under his lordship. He is either Lord of all or is not Lord at all. So I think that is the first truth that John would have us apply at this point uh, in the gospel, but there is another You see, Jesus himself had earlier used the language and image of fishing to speak of uh, evangelism and discipleship. And so back in Mark chapter 1, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that's Peter, and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once... They left their nets and followed him. And notice where this episode takes place. 
possibly on the very same beach that John 21 takes place, which makes this episode very meaningful. But there's another parallel here with a scene in Luke. And after another frustrating night of fishing, Jesus commands uh, Peter to let down the nets once more. And we read this. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And then Jesus said to Simon, that's Peter, do not be afraid, or don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. And so they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything and followed him. Now the similarities are obvious, as are the differences. But notice that fishing was always symbolic of their mission. From the very beginning, fishing was always symbolic of their mission. And so this episode here in John 21 is something of a parable of their mission. And therefore, ours, you see, we are in the same boat as the disciples, if you will, because we too are called to fish. That is, as Christians and as a church, we're called to make disciples. And the obvious lesson for the disciples and for us here is this, that we cannot do so without Jesus. We cannot do so without Jesus. The disciples were learning what, apart from me, you can do nothing, meant. And yet Jesus can still say, bring me some of the fish that you have caught. I don't want to make too much of it because I don't think the text makes too much of it. But it is worth reflecting on for just a moment. You see, the, the narrative would have us see that actually Jesus is the true fisherman here. Jesus is the true fisherman, and yet Jesus still says to his disciples, bring me some of the fish that you have caught. You see, that the whole fishing expedition which at one level is something of a parable of, of the Great Commission, is dependent upon him, does not mean that we don't go fishing. Because it is as we do that Jesus guides and directs us. Throw your net over there and you'll find some. Now this ought to be a tremendous encouragement uh, to us personally. Um, as, we, as we seek to witness to, to those in, uh, people in our lives. And us as a church, as we reach the community in which we live. You know what else should encourage us? That despite the large number of fish, the nets do not break in John 21 as they did in Luke 5. Something's changed. There is something about this mission now that means the nets do not break. And I take it what's changed is that Jesus promises to be with us always to the very end of the age as we go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, and the Son and the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded us. The resurrection means that Jesus is with us as we go. And as we do, let's be very clear here that it is Jesus' lordship that is the point of contention. That is why the world doesn't like the church. That is why people don't like Christians. Because it's Jesus' lordship that is in contention. As Paul writes in Romans, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's good news, isn't it? So who is Jesus to you? And if your instinctive answer is Jesus is Lord, well, reflect upon the floor plan of your life and consider whether there is room in which you are keeping from him. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus lives and that he rules and that he reigns and he promises to be with us as we go. Father, I pray that these truths might dwell in us and bear much fruit in our lives. And this week, may we be a a little bolder, knowing that it is you who guides and directs us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.